stories and drama in the life of a farmer. Brings all that to me. Don Wilson's my guest this morning. Interesting bloke. How old are you, Don? I'll be. I've turned ninety next year. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm currently eighty-eight. My birthday's September. I'll turn ninety next year. Well, what's the fitter thing? Are you? Have you started recently getting fitter or walking? Or what's yeah, your story? I've, I've gone back to getting fitter. When I was young, I played a bit of sport and uh, I did a bit of boxing. And my dad was a champion boxer. What was his name? Uh, Alec Wilson. Yeah. Alec Wilson. Uh, he fought mostly around uh, the Western Districts. He was a lightweight and he used to fight welterweights most of the time. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was so fast you couldn't hit him with a dish of peas. Uh, <laughs> anyway, like most boys, I grew up thinking I was going to be like my dad. And uh, I would have been too. I only, I only had two problems is that I, I couldn't move quick enough and I couldn't punch hard enough. Other, other than that, I was pretty good. And boxing was part of the whole... Look at, look at the Sands boys, the Aboriginal. Yeah. And everybody loved to box didn't they in those they days? did well that was the only place you could go to a gym even when i was young and i trained with the sands brothers i boxed with them i went in the ring and boxed with them but i tell you what though ian i made sure i didn't hit them too hard there's <laughs> a radio show that australians all know if you're rich or you ain't got a cracker they tell stories so grand of this vast timeless land and they call it sunday with macca they all call it Sunday with Macca. Story. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. <laughs> I will do. Good morning and welcome. So many things race through my mind when I hear um, things this morning, when I hear the um, things that uh, Donnie just said there about getting fit. And sometimes I think that the uh, the best the best health check is to is to try and keep fit or just uh before you uh got up this morning if you've just tuned in good morning and welcome um it was debbie from alice springs who just walked the lara pinta trail um it's about 230 k's which is out from alice and ended up on mount sonda and um just said it was a life-changing experience did it on her own but i think the best thing and and i've talked to nicole this morning who was up at the Madhuri Bar for the Kokoda Challenge and Karen near Yapoon, whose sons in their 30s are running uh, the, uh, there's a, not a half marathon, it's one of those triathlons on there. So I think it's, you know, everything in moderation, but um, keeping fit is, is a great way to keep healthy. Or And speaking of which, Karen also talked about the year 1969. She said she remembers that because it was among the first, the, I think it was the first year in Australia, certainly, that pig valves were used in to replace um, uh, damaged and uh, decayed valves in the heart. Um, in 1969, she said her father had one, uh, but they didn't last and they didn't work, so they had to be replaced within, say, I don't know. She said, I think, ten years um, was the was the uh, cut-off time, and they replaced them with, uh, you know, uh, man-made ones probably made of. I'm not sure what they'd be made of, but, um, yeah, so that was her big thing for 1969. And, uh, yeah, lovely, lovely stories, but keeping fit is the, is the way to go. 1300 that's our number. Uh, Kel's wearing a Fitbit this morning because she's running across the corridor because the phones are not don't seem to be working very well in the out-of-control room. So the out-of-control room is truly out of control this morning. Uh, this is from Johnny Moore, says, Macca, good morning. Happy Saturday, which I hope translates to a happy Sunday for your program tomorrow. He's obviously overseas. 
I'm on my rowing high horse again. The National Australian Rowing Team has just swept all before it in Europe, and again, not a bloody word in the Australian media. Suggest you should have your rowing correspondent on, on air tomorrow. Well, I've got a missive from him here. He's um, he's having um, um, he's just returned uh, on the flight, and he's got um, issues. Um, background is, says John Moore, each year prior to the World Championships, the World Cup series of three regattas are staged in Europe. World Cup 1 rode in Plovdiv in Bulgaria, number 2 in Potsdam in Poland, and World Cup 3 in Rotterdam, that's the Netherlands. Points are awarded to each regatta, and the championship is awarded on a total of points accrued over three regattas. Now, despite the fact Australia only entered in two of these three regattas, that's two and three, they so dominated that Australia was awarded the World Cup championship for 2019. Media should recognise this. Well, it's not trendy. It is here. Um, John, thank you very much. For that, um, and speaking of uh, our correspondent Mark Campbell, is jet lagged, badly jet lagged. So, um, but he sent this first, and he was at the Peace Regatta, Henley on Thames, and the Peace Regatta from nineteen nineteen two thousand nineteen, when soldiers came back from the war and they were bivouacked in England before they were from all over before they were returned to their countries. So they had a centenary of the Peace Regatta on the uh, Thames. First things first, he says, the regatta was wonderful, better than ever with the re-emergence of the King's Cup as a special and specific entity within what is already an amazing sporting event. They say the three great events of the English summer are Henley, Ascot and Wimbledon. Of the three, the one anyone can attend, free if they're happy to sit in the river back any, anywhere before the five hundred the final 500 metres or so, is Henley Regatta. It's amazing sport in anyone's language. One of our parents' group had never been to a rowing event in his life. He actually races aeroplanes, and he immediately summed it up perfectly. It's fantastic watching humans race. There's something you can't help responding to. I guess it's probably a primitive, visceral response. Anywhere on that amazing stretch of river, you never are more than 20 metres from either crew as they strain every muscle and sinew in their bodies to breaking point. You can hear the coxswain's call as clear as day. You even hear the oarsmen and the women breathing. Imagine watching a rugby league game from a safe bubble in the middle of the field. I think that's possibly the best analogy. Between the unparalleled proximity to people having a, a, a go and the beauty of the location and all the effort that's gone into the whole setup, it's honestly unique. On the King's Cup Peace Regatta Centenary itself, I'm not sure I can do full justice to what the Australian crew achieved, but I'll give it a crack, says Mark, Mark Campbell. Result-wise, they lost the semi, having beaten the Dutch in the first round. The semi-final was... C- Close. They were overlapping the stern of the German boat after 2,000 metres and they won two wonderful lead-up regattas, including Reading Regatta, where they gave my son's crew, Scots College, a reasonable belting in the final of the men's open eight. To give some extra perspective, the ADF, that's the Australian Defence Force crew, had two women in the boat, as did the KC crews all the way in the... All the, by the way, in the Australian crew, both women were on the same side of the boat. I asked Coach Ian Smith, my mate who did such a great job repairing the crew, if that gave any issues with steering due to strength disparity. Answer, none at all. Impressive. The Yanks then beat the Germans in the final on Sunday. The race was given top building throughout the week and the attention of all the crews and the significance of the race and its history was done beautifully, as perhaps only the English can do it. Fittingly and without bias, the final was the race of the day on Sunday. The Americans started strongly and jumped to a lead of almost half a length. The Germans hung on, then started to creep along uh, the American boat and finally moved to the lead of almost a boat length. In rowing, once that happens, the 
and crew is generally done. They've given their best and it's all over. The Yanks hadn't read the script and they'd settled their rate at 36 strokes per minute, two or three points below the Germans at 39. With 500 metres to grow, they crept up a few feet on the Germans. 500 metres is very close to the finish line, but they kept going and a few cracks appeared in the German crew's technique. With the crowd on their feet screaming, they got past and with perhaps 200 metres to go, they won by almost a length. So, a great race and well done to both crews. Some more perspective, the Australian crew were from postings all over Australia, Victoria, Sydney, Townsville, Darwin, Canberra. All but one are full-time service personnel, many from have been in service overseas. They did most of their training at their individual posting sites and came together for camps, initially for hard-fought selection battles and later for training, as often their duties allowed. They ranked between private and lieutenant colonel, ages 20 to 46. As I've already noted, two women. What that summary misses is what you have to see with your own eyes, their impeccable behaviour, their outstanding physical condition. They're a great group, a crew we can be proud of in every possible sense. The way they came over to say good day to the Scots boys and the other crew in the final at Reading, an American schoolboy crew, St Paul's College, was just sensational, had a, had a real impact on the boys. The other thing that isn't clear from that summary is the following. The Americans are all midshipmen, students at the Annapolis Naval University, who all race within the US collegiate rowing competition. And most, if not all, the Germans are reservists. The Germans still have national service. Mm-hmm. The three of those Germans are former world championship or Olympic rowers. That's not an excuse, and it's within the rules as they are currently constituted, but it, I think it's... Fair, keep that in mind. I love the fact that our crew truly represented our ADF, as did the crew of 1919. I hope the competition continues. There are currently discussions about how that might be and what will be the rules for eligibility. Perhaps just as the current crews represented the gender mix of the modern armed forces, the crew could represent the full-time reservist short-term NASHO mix. Whatever happens, it's a wonderful reminder of former sacrifice and a genuine celebration of rowing and sport generally. And I wouldn't have missed it for quids. No exaggeration, it was a privilege to meet and talk with those men and women. Uh, A few random thoughts, says uh, Mark, Mark Campbell, our rowing correspondent. He's just been over there, Henley on Thames. Uh, Headline is, something we do better than the English, responsible service of alcohol is a really good thing. Watching beautiful young girls staggering hopelessly drunk in the street, still holding a wine bottle in each hand, is not fun. We have plenty of problems with alcohol in Australia, but what still happens in England looks like a lot like Australia in the 1970s. When I explained RSA, Responsible Service of Alcohol, to my host in England, she immediately began drafting a letter to everyone from Boris Johnson down. Something the English do better than us, the hedgerow is now by far England's largest wildlife refuge. About 20 years ago they were seen as obsolete and were being cleared to increase areas for farming. Legislation was introduced to enforce the use of hedgerows on all boundaries and around most paddocks. They call them fields. Now it's absolutely clear that this was a stroke of genius, not only for the wildlife but for the farmers too, many of whom initially opposed the law. It turns out the hedges are a refuge for predatory insects which eat the destructive pest insects and of course like uh, for pollinators like bees. So less insecticide use and better yields. It's been one of the guaranteed win-win stories of all time. We should do the same. Tomorrow, if not sooner, I can hear the farmers say, no, we don't, no, don't make us grow hedgerows. We've got enough to do. 
And quickly, finally, other Henley results after five days of brutal racing. Eaton beat Scotch College from Melbourne in the Schoolboy 8 final. Angus's crew, that's his son, won their first round despite hitting the umbrella on the course. That's an umbrella in the Thames, my God. The New Zealanders won the Open Men's and the Women's Eights and three other races to give... What about the cricket? I mean, can you believe the result in the World Cup? Just think, as soon as I saw New Zealand, they... Sh- oh, dear. To give an idea of how good Kiwis can be, and in the same vein as the All Blacks cleaning their change rooms, the Kiwi men's eight made time to go for a training row after a pre-training chat and warm-up with our boys on the Saturday morning. There's no way they needed to do that. The crew included Mahe Drysdale, who had won the last two Olympic single skull titles, and Hamish Bond, ditto for the past two Olympics in the men's pair. It's a bit like the whole Melbourne Storm team doing a training run with a local under-16 rugby team, rugby league team before a major game. Sydney Rowing Club won the Wyfold Student Fours, very fast time, too faster than the Open Fours, and Mercantile from Melbourne lost the final of the Britannia Fours. Kinross Wallaroy and our Australian champion school girls squad lost their first round race after leading most of the way. It's a long race. Their stroke is the daughter of another vet, Sunita Neville who cocks me in a four in Henley way back in 94. Small world. Mark Campbell, what a great summary. What a great summary. Look, our number this morning is 1300 700 222. I'd love to talk to you wherever you are. This is Macca. Good morning. Uh, g'day. This is Macca. G'day, Macca. Mark Wallace here. How are you? Good, thanks, Mark. I'm calling from Weeper, far north Queensland. We've just sent 14 jet skis off on their way to Papua New Guinea. Well, tell us all the, the story. What's that? We just had a call from Weeper this morning from from Ian, who's up there cleaning up debris on the on the beaches around the place. Oh, okay. So um, what we're doing is it's um, it's a I guess an awareness of um, SARS Sanctuary, a not for profit foundation that both my wife and I we created um, in the last eighteen months after our daughter was murdered in the London Bridge terror attack in two thousand seventeen. Oh, so, dear. yeah. <laughs> It's um, it's something that we need to do to, um, you know, I guess give back to other people. And this event that we're doing is also be able to give back to other communities. So what we're doing is the jet ski is, apart from having an adventure over the next 16 days, is that we're actually delivering clothing to the outer community. So Sidebay Island is going to receive 800 kilo of clothing that um, for them is like gold. So, um, you know, it's something that... We are able to share Sars Sanctuary, but also to give back to other people. And what's it called again, Sars Sanctuary? Tell me. Yes, Sars. So S-A-R-Z, Sanctuary. And Sarah was my daughter, and her nickname was Sars. So that's how we've, we've created that name. Well, Mark, I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, I, I was just thinking while you start talking about clothing and PNG, I remember we had a correspondent here, a lovely lady. She lived in Tassie, but she was uh, originally from the mainland. But she, um, she sent a, a bag of... Uh, uh, clothing up there uh, from time to time, and she said it was quite uh, funny to to walk into the highlands, up into the highlands of New Guinea, and and f- find people wearing a bulldog's uh, uh, t-shirt or something like that. They're wearing all sorts of things with t-shirts with you know things that you'd immediately associate with with Australia, but here they were in the highlands, and they were not headhunters, but you know, uh, right in remote parts, and they were wearing these footy jerseys from all over, which is, she said, was lovely to see. Yeah, we had uh, Warren Inch from um, uh, up here, which is a local MP. He sent us off uh, out of Cairns, and he said that uh, when he goes into New Guinea, they're all wearing Boat One Warren. So, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> so Mark, um you said how many how many jet skis? Fourteen jet skis. Yeah, so there's fourteen skis just left um at the break of uh, daylight this morning and they'll make their way through to Thursday Island today and then into Daru tomorrow. So, so how how far is that all all up? And is that dangerous? I mean I suppose it is if it's rough and stuff, but what yeah, I mean, it, it does have its, uh, uh, I guess, danger about it. In 2013, I did it myself with another three riders. Uh, we did it unsupported uh, with a, without a boat. This time we've got a boat. Um, you know, it's something which is it's quite amazing, the fact that you think about you've got to go from a different country, so you're checking out through Border Force, you're getting your, your passport stamped, all those things. So, yeah, it's quite an adventure. Oh, so where are you from, Mark? Uh, Brisbane. Mark, um, this uh, the uh, stabbing on London Bridge was how long ago now? I mean, time just in time fly. You think of things, and when when was that? And um, uh, wh- how's your life changed? I suppose you look at yourself. You must, you do. You re- you review your life all the time, don't you, Mark? Oh, hundred percent. It was um, the anniversary of two years was the third of June. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, time is going fairly quickly. Um, but oh, hundred percent. What you're saying is that. Um, since that incident, both um, Julie and my my lives have changed dramatically, and you know what we do now is 100% SARS sanctuary. So it's it's changed my life so much that all I want to do is be able to give back to other people who suffered traumatic grief and and, uh, and help them through. And and you you're just talking about exercise as being a, a powerful thing, and we see that so much in people who have suffered grief. They if they get out and, and use their bodies, then you know it, it helps it to um, mend the mind as well. So, um, yeah, we just recently came back from uh, riding our bikes from London to Paris. So we had 40 riders. We raised over $180,000 for Star Sanctuary, and and we were able to to ride 350Ks on our bikes over seven days. Yeah, I'm just just sitting here thinking about um, your, your daughter and... Yeah, how you how you just readjust your life, and but in in some ways it takes t- terrible tragedies and horrible things that happen in your life that you you live with that uh, that really do change your life, don't you? And, and you and you often think it's paused to reflect on what you would have been like if that hadn't happened in your in your life in in some strange way. Do you know what I mean? Oh, hundred percent. And you learn that they you know those small things or the first world problems just don't matter. Um, you know, like we've got to prove to our our two sons that you know life is positive and you can move on and you can deal with these things. So, yeah, it is. It does change your life dramatically, and you know it, it'd be nice to go through life without being touched by anything. But everyone, I guess, touched by some sort of um, grief or trauma or stress or anxiety, you know, even if it's just divorce or uh, something minor. But yeah, you've just got to work out and, and learn coping mechanisms for them. Mark, uh, I think I asked uh, Ian, who was in Weeper, what it was like in Weeper. He said it was a balmy, going to be a balmy eighteen degrees or something. Lovely, uh, lovely up there. Yeah, no, it's beautiful here at the moment. So uh, the sun's, you know, it's coming up now. It's um, yeah, a bit of wind around. So yeah, we were out in the water yesterday, and it was just dead flat. Watching you know crocs slide into the water, which was pretty exciting. <laughs> well, yeah, depends. <laughs> Depends where you are, right? If you're in the water, it wouldn't be pretty too exciting. You mean you, you mean the leather undertakers? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but on a jet ski, you've got a fair chance. Yeah. So you're not going on the jet ski this time to uh, off to um, PNG. Where do they land in PNG? At Daru. Daru. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm running a support crew, so there's 16 of us, like 10, 10 vehicles and 16 people.
Good on you, Mark. I hope to meet you sometime, mate. Um, we're coming to Brisbane, so um, sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. So you better come in and talk to us, and yeah, we'll go and have a cup of coffee or something. Fantastic. Yeah, mine's a turmeric latte. Um, <laughs> That's not coffee. <laughs> <laughs> See you, Mark. Nice to talk to you. Good on you. Thanks, Mark. Anne Marie's near Carry On. Good morning, Anne Marie. Good morning, Macca. How are you? Yeah, good, good, good. That's good. What? I'm just ringing up to uh, wish you all the best with your rain dances that you're going to. Ah, uh, good. Yeah, well, are you coming? Where are you? Well, I'd love to come. Um, I'm um, I'm in Newcastle, so I won't be there, but um, Coonabarra Brands has a soft spot in my heart. We um, went out there last September, took a busload of 50 people, and um, we had a weekend out there. Raising some money for the farmers. I know how terribly dry it is out there, and I know they're so excited that you're coming. <laughs> well, I'm excited too. I have. <laughs> I, I, I was in Coonabarra. You know, there's lots of places. I was in Coonabarra. Oh. Look, I'm not sure about. Um, it must have been ten, fifteen years ago, and and um, I was out in the Pilliga Forest, and I ran across a creek and went in because it was sort of soft sand, went in up to my waist, but. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> but but that's my memory of a recent memory. It was about fifteen years ago in in Kuna. But then years ago, I was working on a big country television program, and we went out to uh, Binaway in Coonabarra and we we're doing a thing on the yes. on Frank Burke's White Rose Orchestra, which used to hang around and play around those sort of areas. Yes, so, yep. and I remember Coonabarra Bran. It was. Uh, early autumn, probably mid-autumn, and the leaves, the lovely claret ashes and stuff had turned, and I thought, isn't this a lovely town? Um, it is a lovely spot. So I'm looking forward to getting back there, Anne-Marie. Yeah, well, there'll be a warm welcome for you. I know um, if, if, if you give a call out to Marie Knight, have you heard of her, the lamb jumper lady? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we've talked to Marie because she rings us from time to time about the lamb jumpers. And, yeah, uh, yeah. She yeah, well, uh, well, she sent me an email and said, Macca, if you want to come out here, we'd love to have you. So that's really the reason why we're going out there. Awesome. That's great. And you just mentioned Maury as well. We um, we, we headed there in March as well. So well, aren't, you, aren't you a, a good girl for doing all that sort of thing? For oh. Well, uh, no, I think it's I, I think it's important. That's why that's why we're going. I'm going out because you know, I sit here and I think, well, what can I do? Tell people there's a drought on. What can I do? What can I do? And and so I just asked the boys, and um, and we're going. We're going to play. And I haven't played a dance for years. I mean, well, we usually do concerts and stuff like that. But we used to play, and that was the best time I ever had. Was when you're playing on a little stage, and the yeah. dance floor's jammed, and everybody's jiving around or whatever they're doing, and. <laughs> And and even when we were, we used to play school dances and and we used to do a um, a progressive barn dance and and this is in the seventies um, I don't know if they do progressive barn dance anymore no, but I'm going to I'm going sure. to bung one on and see if it's, it's a great <laughs> way to great. it's a great way to meet everybody and you only have to dance with that one person for twenty seconds if they've got sweaty palms or they're an arm <laughs> arm pump oh, or a bit and then you yeah then they move on so. You, and that way you get to meet everybody in the room and, and all that sort of stuff. So that's, that, I wish I had have known this was happening because I'm organising another bus trip out there to September. All right. So, um, and then we go back to Maureen March next year. Yeah, well, I know, but, every, um, every, never you, mind. You could do it to every, every town, couldn't you, when they're, when they're struggling oh, like this? Because, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, you feel, yeah. Uh, it's, like, it's like anything in your own personal life, but you feel isolated yeah. at times in life, don't you? And, oh, um, definitely. Well, we stop in, all, in, in the little towns all on the way and have breakfast. We have breakfast at Marawa and then we go 
lunch in Arabri, up to Moray if we're going that way or, yeah, so we sort of try and support the little towns because they're, they're struggling as much as the farmers, that's for sure. Well, I'll give you a report next Sunday, Anne-Marie. Uh, That'll be fantastic. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll take some video, I'll take some video. I might even have a dance myself, actually. <laughs> good on you. Have fun. Okay, good on you. Bye. Bye. John Colvin, who played a small part, and yet it's just the sort of thing, um, what do you call him, a space altruist, uh, and recognises the Australian spirit. Here's this bloke beavering away in Melbourne. He's gone now, John Colvin, but his son's on the line, Alan Colvin. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Ian. How are you? Oh, good, thank you. That's a great description, isn't it? A space altruist. That's, that's how he's described your father. Yeah, it's a pretty good description. He didn't uh, he didn't do it for the fame and glory or the money. He just did it because uh, he just thought that the space program was the coolest thing on the planet at the time. And if he could be some way involved in that, then that would uh, that would fill his heart full of glee. And it's and it's amazing. We hear about all these are. That's what I love about Australia and and the program that we do here. I'm always looking for people, unsung heroes, and the play, the joints crawling with them. They're falling out of windows, and as as my mate um, who used to call the trots when there was a close finish and there was horses everywhere, he said they're falling out of trees here. Um, and that's there's people like your father John Colvin, but you never hear about them, Alan. Only it's, it's peculiar circumstances. Tell me about the story about about him and and how he came to think. Well, look this. Those blokes are going to the moon. Mike could do with these glasses I'm working on. So what happened, Ian, was in, in 1966. Now, you've got to remember, I'm uh, 55, so I was born in 64. So I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, so my memory going back uh, 55, 50 years aren't, aren't flash. But Dad was good enough to write a journal before he passed of his life. And uh, in 1966, uh, he was invited to attend a lecture by two uh, astronauts, Wally Sherrard and Frank Borman. And they were uh, talking about their space missions and what was going well and also about a couple of issues that they had. And one of the issues that they had was uh, glare. And what that means was when they were up there and they had to do their docking between the, you know, the mothership and the spacecraft, there, there was glare issues that were emanating from the light side and the dark side of the moon. And they couldn't resolve the issues, and they'd been right around America, and and no one had come up with an answer. So, Dad, um, Dad had an answer for them. So, the backstory to that is that Dad, uh, you know, his first passion was about ophthalmology, and um, uh, I, he was an eye, eye surgeon, but his second passion was about flying. So, he'd done some work with the Royal Australian Air Force, and they, Royal Australian Air Force, had two issues with their fighter pilots. And one of the issues was that um, when they were pulling all the Gs, doing all the moves that they were doing, the lenses on their glasses would actually pop out of the sunglasses when they were wearing them. So he fixed that problem with a few clips around the edge of the uh, frame. And uh, the second issue they had was glare. Um, glare from the sun, water in the clouds and stuff. So he worked on um, uh, some glasses with Martin Hogan, who was a, uh, gla- uh, a uh, glass... Uh, maker in um, in uh, Collins Street, and so uh, he he worked on this uh, design where they put a gold filter uh, over the over the lens, and what that did was it blocked out the glare, but it kept the integrity of the colours and the shades when they were looking through. So um, all of a sudden they didn't have the glare issue. So 
when uh, the two astronauts said they had glare issues, um, Dad uh, went up to them at the end of the lecture and said, I think I can help you. <laughs> and um, the next day, they met at the Southern Cross Hotel, and he showed them these glasses he'd, he'd developed for the uh, RAF pilots. And then a month later, he was in Houston, Texas, um, test flying the model with, their, with the astronauts. So that's how it came about. <laughs> Well, it's just a mind-blowing story. I just think it's marvellous. And, and, and that description of a space altruist, he d- didn't get a bean for it. And uh, is there a little plaque or something like that? I mean, he should be, his name should be up there, John Colvin, ophthalmologist, who did this mighty work. What sort of a bloke was uh, your dad, uh, Alan? Uh, he was a very quiet, um, self-effacing guy, which is probably part of the reason that there's, there's not a lot of celebration about him. But it, at Tidbin Billa, which is uh, an ex-NASA site just outside of Canberra, there's a little uh, um, uh, uh, the, the glasses that he designed, the prototype glasses that he designed. There's a stand there with them in there, and the sort of the whole story. And um, he's been celebrated, um, you know, by NASA because they sent him some uh, some uh, le- some letters and correspondence. So I'll just read one of the letters. It came uh, November 13, 1968. It says, Dear John, we're busily uh, engaged in post-flight activities. We have a feeling of elation that our flight was 101% successful. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for the conceptual design and development of the cockpit blinders for the rendezvous phase of our mission. They were a great aid and contributed to the success of the manoeuvre. Again, my sincere thanks and best wishes, Wally Sharar, Captain USN, NASA astronaut. So... Um, and so much so that he was actually then invited back over a series of years to continue to develop the prototype on the uh, on the future mission. So it was first tried on Apollo 7 uh, with 101% success, and uh, then it was uh, adapted and, and used in the future in the future missions. It's a it's a lovely story, and and that description of space altruists. See, if he'd if he'd be around today or in another time, if he'd been doing this today. There'd be a new, rather than all the whiz bang, um, oaky and sunglasses. You could have, you could market these Colvins. They're they're the new, they're the new glasses that everybody's wearing. George Clooney's wearing Colvins. Um, they, <laughs> that's what you'd do, uh, Alan. That's what right. that's what had happened. Colvins would be the the new thing that everybody, apres ski wear, all that sort of stuff. Down on the ski slopes in Aspen, in Japan, you'd be wearing a pair of Colvins. Yeah, it might be a good business opportunity to follow up, but basically. Um we, between him and Martin Hogan, they, they developed these, the first sort of polycarbonate lenses, and with this gold coating, it, it solved the the, uh, the the glare problem. So um, it was it was obviously a very exciting time for him, and it was an exciting time for us as family. It's a lovely story about John Colvin. Alan, you didn't become an ophthalmologist. It's hard to say early in the morning, actually. It is hard to say. Ophthalmologist, no. Uh, my brother and my sister and myself, another another. None of us became ophthalmologists, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I guess I guess there's one other um, story I'd like to like to pass on. Um, Dad was a really friendly bloke, and uh, when he went over to the US and the NASA program, he made a lot of mates. And what you do with mates is you ask for favours. So he uh, he got to know the head ophthalmologist there, a guy by the name of Al Harker, and. Um, he was there when Apollo 11 took off, you know, the one with uh, Aldrin and Armstrong and Collins. And four days before the mission, Ian, um, he got able to go into the space, uh, to the top um, and, and get into the space module. And he sat in um, wow. 
Um, he sat in uh, uh, Neil Armstrong's seat. This was four days before the mission, and he thought, right, because it's as you've seen in all the movies, it's quite cramped in there. So what he did was he, he put his hand up and he put his thumbprint on the uh, console above the uh, above the seat. And, uh, you know, I don't think there'd be too many Australians who could say that they their thumbprint went to the moon and back. But, uh, you know, that, that was one thing he was pretty he was pretty stoked about. Oh, that's good. And he was, you said he was quite a reticent sort of person, but he was a good speaker, obviously, a good uh, talker. Yeah, he was, a, he was a great talker. Um, he ended up, um, uh, for 37 years, if you can believe it, he ended up doing um, uh, lectures on ophthalmology for the fifth and sixth year medical students in, in, uh, at the Royal Eye and Ear Hospital in Melbourne. So he was quite the raconteur, quite the entertainer. And, um, you know, but the, the thing that we were most happy about was that every time he went to the US, he came back with some space stuff and... Um, <laughs> So he bring stuff, back, of course, he bring stuff. back space, space food. Uh, he brought back a space helmet. He had photos, uh, stickers, cloth patches, and in, in the in the um, construct of the rocket, um, there was this thing called aluminium honeycomb. And aluminium honeycomb um, was was in the in the lining of the walls of the rocket, and it was it was this special stuff that they made. Um, to deal because it had to expand and contract with the heat and the and the coldness of the of the flight, so it was this really incredibly strong um, substance, but it was able to be flexible. So the beauty of that, Ian, was that you know my brother David, my sister Andrea, and myself were able to take this stuff to school, and um, you know we, we we became the you know for one day we were all the sort of always the popular, most popular kid in school for one day. So it was good to be popular for something good as opposed to flatulence or something like that. So, um, uh, you know, and, and the funny thing was that uh, um, eight years ago, so I, I did uh, year 12 in, in, in 2011, I had my 30-year reunion. Yeah. And um, I went along and this guy who would had a couple of beers, um, I've got to admit, and he came up to me and said, you know, Big Al, how are you? And I said, good, Johnny, how are you? He said, your dad, he was an astronaut, wasn't he? And I said, uh, no, he, he was involved in the space program. And trying to explain to someone who's a bit yarpy, you know, that, that um, about gold, you know, plating on sunglasses and stuff like that didn't go too well. And I finished my explanation and he said, no, nah, no, nah, you've got it all wrong. He was an astronaut. And I said, yeah, 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 he was an astronaut. Yeah, sure he was. So uh, sometimes you just got to go with the flow, but um, exactly. we, we were there. <laughs> he wasn't an astronaut. He just he just played his role with the anti glare glasses. But um, yeah, people remember it. You know, thirty years later, they still remember me taking the space helmet and the space food and all that stuff in, which was uh, which was a hoot. How good space stuff! Everybody should have space stuff in their house, mate. Um, yeah, well, we've got plenty. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, it's a lovely story and, and lovely to talk to you um, about, uh, yeah, uh, mate, that's what I'd get onto that, the Colvins, mate. Uh, start look, exploring the business opportunity, mate. All right. Well, thanks very much, Ian. Talk about Dad. We're very proud of him and I'll, I'll, I'll look into that, uh, that, that yeah, uh, sunglass yeah. idea. And, get, I'll, and I'll have the first pair of Colvins, okay? Okay. Thanks, good, Ian. Good on you, mate. Bye. Cheers. Bye. G'day, this is Macca. Oh, good morning, Macca. Good morning. Um, it's Debbie calling you from Alice Green, Central Australia. Yes, I know. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks for locating it. Deb, good on you. How are you? Good, thank you, Macca. 
Maka, I just wanted to share with you and uh, your listeners the most amazing experience I've just had the last 15 days. I've trekked the Larrapinta Trail from Alice Springs out to Mount Sonda mm. on the Western McDonald's. Yep. Don't know if you've heard about the Larrapinta Trail. Of course. Yeah, of okay. Of course. We, okay. We have, we've, we've had calls from the Larrapinta Trail from time to time. Anyway, go on. Okay. Look, I wanted to call you last Sunday, but I wasn't able to. So, yeah, Maka, I finished last, uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, I actually did the trek uh, for my 60th birthday as a solo. Good on you. Yeah, the 200, 230 k's or so. Um, ma- magnificent country, Maka. Yeah, where, 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 where are you from? Are you from the Alice Debbie or yes, no? I am. Yeah, yes, I am. I'm a local. Uh-huh. Yeah, about a third-generation local. And I've heard so much about the Larrapinta Trail, even though I've seen sections gone out there and seeing gaps and gorges and the wonders that we have out there, I just felt I really wanted to go and explore in depth um, what it was all about. And and, and, and on your own, solid. Debbie, and on yeah, your own. How good is that? Absolutely. It was amazing, Macca. Mm. Absolutely the best birthday I think I've ever had. <laughs> um, seriously, had to wait until now. Now, it's absolutely beautiful. And, you know, people around Australia are listening and they want to do something totally amazing um, I, I just couldn't recommend it highly enough. Just so, to get in touch with the country, absolutely. So what did you, you took a little backpack and some, what, some uh, yeah. j- beef jerky or something and some water oh, or it, what? Absolutely, exactly that, Macca. A little backpack with a sleeping bag and some dehydrated food and lots of water and um, just set off here. Yep, set off from the telegraph station in Alice Springs. See, lo- lots of water. <laughs> Water's very heavy to carry, isn't it? Mackie, you're right. There's one section which is about 30k and there's no water um, within that range. So, yeah, one particular morning I set up and it was quite a steep climb with six litres of water yeah, to do me in case I needed to overnight. That's heavy. So that's six kilos. Yeah. But it's, it was amazing, Macca. Quite life-changing. Absolutely. Um, well, it's that's... available there to anyone. There was a lot of trekkers from around Australia. A lot of trekkers from down in Victoria, New South Wales. Um, many young people from overseas. There you go. And did you? What birthday was it for you? My sixtieth, Macca. Yeah, and as you said, when you when you're sixty, you need a life changing experience, and that sounds like it. Well, I think we'll all do it, uh, Deb. All right. It, it was absolutely fabulous, Macca. And I had my whole family out at Bank Ward, which is the Section Eleven, yeah. to meet me on Friday night, and we camped overnight, and then they, we all cooped up Mount Sonda. Oh, uh, how good Yesterday morning, yeah, to celebrate. Good on uh, you, Deb. Hopefully, thanks, Macca. It's a lovely thing, and thanks for inspiring us. That's okay. Cheers, Macca. Good on Bye. you. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.